what happens right after a bank robbery? What can we do to fight internet rumors? And how do trains get attacked these days? All of that in this episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today we talk to Brian Ishikawa, CPP, about managing mental health after bank robberies at Bank of Hawaii. Michael Gipps, CPP, tells us some scary stories about reputation management gone wrong. And Mickey Schiffman gives us a quick bird's eye view of the threats he watches for in freight internationally in cybersecurity. That's right, it's a smorgasbord of topics. And first up is Bank of Hawaii SVP and Director of Corporate Security, Brian Ishikawa, on the small tweaks he's made to employee care that happened the day of a bank robbery. I think too often for us, the biggest sort of event that we're worried about people's mental health is a bank robbery. Yeah. And too many times when there's a bank robbery, yes, we are worried about people's health, but Oftentimes, if a gun was pulled, but nobody was shot, you know, nobody was physically wounded. And so while we talk about nobody was wounded, nobody was shot, nobody was hurt, and we then talk about losses, uh, financial losses of how much money we might have lost during the robbery. But at times, the industry as a whole often tended to forget about the mental damage, the psychological damage that people had sometimes for years, they walked around with this stuff, right? That makes sense. I would be understandable if no one was hurt and everything worked out okay physically. Woo, breathe a sigh of relief. We're great. See you guys now. If you come in late tomorrow or whatever, things will, everything's fine again. You're right. It might get brushed under the... You'd be, you'd be relieved nothing bad happened, so you wouldn't think about, oh, there might be an impact to this. Correct. Okay, so tell me when you sat down to think about what kind of mental health support do we want to offer to employees at the bank, what were you, how did you figure that out? What, what did you look at initially? What data or what information did you look at to set and, it? And let me start off by maybe mentioning sort of a caveat here. I can't say I okay. own all of the response or that I strategized and created all of the response that we have today, but I fine-tuned it and made some adjustments to it. But um, as far as figuring out what mental health support bank folks needed, especially post-robbery yes. incident, for me, that came while responding to several bank robbery incidents. One of the things that I noticed was most important for a responding security professional was to bring calm to an otherwise chaotic situation, right? So it's a chaotic scene at a branch after they've been robbed. Yeah. To me, it's vital for branch staff to see someone who is calm, takes charge of the scene by identifying himself or herself to the lead law enforcement officer on scene and to clearly make known that they are the primary point of contact representative from a bank robbery incident perspective. But that's only part of it, right? The staff um, should also then be turned toward by the security professional and just ask, mm -hmm. hey, how are you folks doing? Even if it's a simple, hey, how are you doing? tries to bring some normalcy back to the staff in an otherwise chaotic situation. They want to, the staff there want to be comforted by someone from the company, right? And knowing what follows after that is that we've requested our vendor, our EAP or employee assistance yeah. 
program vendor to come by for counseling and whatnot. But to see somebody actually go through or breach the crime scene tape and law enforcement's there, really nobody else from management's being allowed into the branch. But having somebody from the security team pop in, look at the staff and address them and, hey, sort of like the Calvary's here, helps on the way, right? How are you folks doing? Is to bring that personal touch to an otherwise chaotic situation. In the times when you have been the person, so you have been the person who's done this? Yes. Okay. When you go, I feel like there might be a thing if everyone's gathered together, like, I'm just going to make a group announcement. How's everybody doing? When you go, do you always make a point or do you make a point of making sure you touch base with each person? Or is it a sort of a group setting? Is everybody cool? It's not always a group. And it's simply because sometimes uh, a portion of those staff members may be doing other tasking or maybe comforting clients that are still in the branch at the time. And some of them, some of our staff are being literally interviewed by police personnel. So it's hard to gather up everybody in that sort of, uh, shall we say, law enforcement response situation. It's hard to gather up everybody. So it more so ends up being a smaller group and then individuals, literally me walking or one of my staff members walking through the branch, talking to folks and making sure that they're okay, they're physically not hurt and that, you know, they're being asked, hey, how are you doing? Okay. So that's the that's the first, you know, post-incident hello and check-in. Um, what are the other things that unfold after that, either from that EAP person or from a security perspective? So from a security perspective, we're assisting law enforcement with getting surveillance images. Uh, if the person wasn't a account holder or could be identifiable, we're providing additional information in that regard. Um, okay. But... Aside from the law enforcement piece, there's a huge personal issue or personnel-related issue there. It's that security professional dealing with our HR component and talking to them about, hey, how are staff members ensuring that EAP vendor response has been requested or is on the way and trying to time that, right? We can't let EAP professionals come in during a crime scene, but as soon as that crime scene is released, we're letting them in. So um, it's sort of managing that that next act that's going to take place into the branch. Okay. What are the tweaks that um, you you mentioned had a caveat? I'm, you know, I'm not responsible for setting up all this stuff, but we make tweaks. What little tweaks beside that initial hello, either after an incident or during the incident, as you thought as a security professional, what kind of tweaks did you make and how, how have they played out if you've gotten the chance to see how they played out yet? So I strategized two different efforts. The first effort involved updating our robbery training that is mandatory for all branch residing staff to take twice a year. The training was made more realistic and communicated the potential of being involved in a bank robbery and what to expect during a robbery. We didn't sugarcoat the training some of the industry training is geared towards not wanting to scare a brand new teller. And not that <laughs> sure. the newer revised training scares folks, but we want it to be more realistic, right? If you're in a branch setting, okay. you're a branch employee, there's a chance at some point in your career, you could be involved in a robbery, right? We didn't try to sugarcoat yeah. that. And it's sort of like, an, um, I equate this to the airlines industry, when you step into an airplane and you're sitting down and prior to takeoff, they're going through this whole flight safety 
issues about knowing where your exits are and whatnot, right? The airlines industry knows that half the folks on the plane aren't really listening to that. Right. But they're trying to build, for those that are listening, uh, a safety or survival mindset. And it's sort of the same thing that we're trying to do with robbery training. The second effort involved emphasizing the need for same-day post-traumatic event-type counseling instead of the day following the robbery incident. So typically in the banking industry, uh, in a bank robbery, almost always counseling was provided on day two. We pushed for that happening on day one. Okay. Given the logistics and timing of the robbery incident, most counseling of this nature in our industry was performed the day after the incident. Think about the positive optics of providing the first counseling session on the same day of the incident. It is a gesture to show that the bank truly does care about its staff and is doing everything possible that we can possibly do to restore normalcy within the branch operations. Imagine yourself at a dinner table and speaking with a significant other who was involved in a bank robbery incident. As you know, in the banking industry, in a branch setting, we have a huge amount of female staff members, right? And often younger. So imagine your daughter being a, uh, a brand new branch teller and she comes home saying that there was a robbery incident, right? As a father or as a significant other, you'd feel a lot better if she also mentioned not just recounting the incident, but that she received counseling that same day before she went home and told you this story. And that more so, she was also provided additional materials about post-traumatic stress and subsequent counseling sessions were offered to him or her, right? It gives that significant other some comfort knowing that, okay, something positive is being done with, with my, my loved one. So that makes sense, and it's, but I want to know why the standard is day two, and I'll just guess, you know, playing devil's advocate, oh, we don't want to keep people, go home and decompress. We don't want to hold people here. You've just had this traumatic event. We don't want to hold you here. The best thing for you is to go home and come back, and we'll talk about it. And I think maybe you changed it because we're learning about traumatic events. It's not best to have a traumatic event and then think you can wander away from it and then try to come back. Like there's possibly damage or stress or things that can happen between that and the next morning. Correct, you hit it right on the nose. You know, a lot of it is also the vendor, uh, the vendor's uh, ability to respond to, right? right? So let's say yeah. the bank robbery takes place in the early afternoon. Really by the time the crime scene is done, it may be an hour or sometimes two, three hours later. And then we're calling a vendor in who is traveling from, let's say, point X into the branch, it's, it's already end of day or beyond end of day. And so typically in the past, it would have been, hey, tomorrow morning will be their first thing. Right. First thing next business day or first, <laughs> first thing next day, right. right. <laughs> have you had a chance to see this play out yet or is this something set up and you're like, we're going to see how it works when the next thing happens? No, we, we've seen it play out. Uh, we've been doing this. Okay shall we say, the current protocol that, that I'm describing now, uh, we've been doing it for several years, actually prior to the, the pandemic. Okay, so far so good, says Brian. And always looking to tweak that training one more time. So now let's turn from guns and robbery to the more abstract but still threatening issue of reputation management. 
especially on the internet, with Michael Gibbs, founder of security consulting firm Global Insights in Professional Security. That's right, G-I-P-S, Gips. See what he did there? Well, as Gips explains, it's not just PR and the C-suite bigwigs who need to step in when rumors and lies bubble up about your company. Reputation is a security issue. I can see this push to corporate governance people. HR, they handle reputation. You don't. So tell me in the work you've done, you're thinking on how reputational issues latch on or get in the way of security issues or a part of that. I know it's a big question. It's a big question, but you're right on. Reputational issues often arise from social media risk. We've had, look, we've had reputational issues, you know, ever since there was any reputations to besmirch, right? Right. So, and in the past, reputational issues against corporations were like conspiracy theories or things that went around, you know, people faxed papers, say, hey, did you know that Procter & Gamble uses you know, devil imagery or something and, you know, ridiculous things. (laughs) Well, now we're in the age of cyber and social media where somebody's, you know, nutty or paranoid or even slightly factual, fact-based presumption gets, you know, sent around the world and, you know, millions of people see it. When I was thinking originally reputational issues, I'm thinking something factually, a real disaster has happened or someone at the company has really messed something up or something is bad. There, there's been malfeasance, there's been embezzlement, someone's done something wrong and you are trying to fix it out in public. But you're even talking about a, a, another side of that, which is all the stuff out there people say about a company, which could be a little true, but it's massively false or totally false. Exactly. And we've had reputational issues that we've dealt with in security for a long time. But those reputational issues, you know, security has had limited involvement. What's not really being dealt with is the potential for completely unfounded reputational risk or partly unfounded or somewhat founded, as you described, from the ubiquity and the speed of the Internet and social media. And what makes it even more, you know, more of a threat is that it's taking advantage of new technology. It's co-opting digital natives, you know, millennials and Gen Z. There's no expertise. It's very simple. And one of the one of the most intractable issues I find is that the threat is often unintentional, or it's magnified unintentionally, or it has good intentions behind it. So there are two big cases that that are pretty well known. One is um, the Wayfair um, case where the e-retailer was selling expensive cabinets and consoles, and they happened to have girls' names, and they were really expensive. You know, it was several thousand dollars for you know one of the pieces of furniture, and rumors got out that they weren't really selling the furniture; they're selling girls underage girls. It was child trafficking. And it really spread on social media. There was no truth to it. But part of it was that people would see, you know, things like pillows with girls' names too. And they'd say, oh my God, it's $10,000 for a pillow. They're selling girls. And a few mistakes turned into, you know, it spread the rumor. And even though Wayfair tried to come out and say, you know, this is blown out of proportion, but <laughs> there's nothing to do with it. It's right. just, you know, very high quality stuff. It got out there. There were threats against the CEO. The stock price got hurt. 
So there's two kinds of outcomes here, or at least two kinds. There's kinetic, which is, you know, physical attacks against people who get, you, you know, who might be, you know, threatened with their life or, or beaten. And then there's the reputation, which goes to the public perception, public trust, and eventually the bottom line of, co- of the company, the stock price, valuation, things like that. The other big case was Pizzagate, and you've probably heard of this I was one. about to mention this. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Comet Ping Pong, it's a restaurant in D.C., and there were all sorts of claims that there's an elite group of people in D.C. that are, again, child trafficking. And some guy, he thought, oh, my gosh, you know, there's tunnels underneath this place, and they're sharing kids. And he went, I think it was from maybe the south, he came up to D.C. with a rifle, and he went in. And he said, show me the tunnels. And, you know, there were no tunnels. He, he tried doors. He tried to look. He said, there's no basement here, much less tunnels. And he eventually, I'm not sure if he took a shot. He didn't hurt anybody, but he was eventually arrested by police. Now, he had good intentions. I mean, we would hail him if there were really something going on. We'd say he's right. a hero. If it turned out he found the tunnels, right. Exactly. So in that case, good intentions. Another area which, which makes this such a hotbed or such a um, potentially big problem is that it's exploited by even technologically, it's limited nation states. So, you know, we all, Russia does this with this information, China does it, and they're trying to attack our, our democratic institutions. And part of our democratic institutions is our um, capitalism, right? Our capitalistic, capitalist style of, um, of living. Uh, and, even North Korea, they barely have an internet line, but they're still pretty sophisticated. You know, um, certainly Iran and other countries that want to take pot shots, and they they can punch way above their weight because of the internet. Um, so those are those are big issues there. So a lot of this stuff feels out of. So I'm thinking about a security professional, a standard company. A lot of this stuff feels like post uh, crisis management. The crisis has happened. Some crazy thing is spun up. And now it's the PR people who have to deal with the public aftermath, and it's the security people who have to either deal with cybersecurity. So I'm wondering, is there anything to think about instead of crisis management after the fact? Is there really risk management? Can Given the fact how fast these rumors go, and this stuff spins up in hours instead of days and weeks, mm-hmm. what should security professionals think about inside their risk management when it comes to reputational issues? What's inside their purview? Yeah, that's again, that's a great question. And you really hit on it by talking about risk management because the solutions start with a traditional risk analysis. Okay. Um, so what you do is if these things just don't necessarily come out of thin air, you can predict some of it. You know, you inventory and prioritize what your brand assets are and you look for possible threats and vulnerabilities. So if you're doing something that can be seen controversial, those are the things that you're looking at. Okay. Um, hot button issues related to either your organization, something your leadership espouses or endorses, the services you provide, or the specific products. You look at stances take, taken by your organization or leadership on social issues, political issues, on religion, and then industry-specific issues. So another example is Walmart is one of the leading, was one of the leading providers of vaccinations for COVID. And 
they have been facing disinformation about COVID vaccinations. And so they wanted to know, you know, when they're dealing with their local community, you know, what kind of vaccine resistance or reluctance there was and where they might be able to expect trouble. So they actually got an organization that specializes in this to do tracking it using social media, a map of counties where or locations where Walmart stores are and vaccine reluctance. So they can see, okay, here, you know, if we're doing it in downtown Manhattan or whatever, we probably won't have a problem, but if we're doing it here in this area of, and they kind of matched, you know, um, the demographics, certain demographics, and they identified certain demographics that were more vaccine resistant than others. And they weren't necessarily what you'd expect, right? So they were able to give Walmart that roadmap so they knew where, you know, they might expect maybe even violence against its pharmacists or protests against it. So that's the kind of thing they knew what they were doing. They knew it was a hot button issue and they could prepare for it. There are very few things that everybody agrees on as facts anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got to look at the other side. Like, can this, can this be questioned? You know, how can someone misinterpret this? Yeah. Um, and you could actually look out there just to, basic Google search on, is this real or whatever? And someone will come up with, you know, just say, you know, it's a sky blue. And it's like, no, it's a conspiracy by blah, blah, blah. You know, the <laughs> the, the people who, who uh, Crayola to, to sell blue crayons or whatever to draw, you know, it's, that's pro probably out there. Um, well, hopefully not. That Walmart one's a really good example for kind of an actionable thing where you can gather, you know, there's a problem, you can gather the information, you can make those people knowledgeable in those locations and prepare for something to happen. Is there anything else, any other aspect of implementation? Once you've set up a plan, you're waiting for something to happen. Do you just have like an army of social media people who are paid, keeping their kind of ear to the uh, internet rail? You can. That's not very cost effective. Correct. <laughs> companies, there are companies out there that help um, their clients ingest data so they might be out there and they can either send you the data and that's overwhelming. But what they'll do is they'll have analysts assigned. So say Global Insights and Professional Security wants to keep an, you know, an ear out for any mention. So they might say, okay, I'm a security company. So let's look out for anything from Michael Gibbs, Global Insights, Professional Security, anything having to do with security company or any of the topics I deal with, or maybe I even give them a list of places that I've spoken or topics that I cover, okay, this could be, you know, he, sp he speaks about the Wayfair or, or Pizzagate. So that could be something, you know, so they'll monitor, you'll have a company that monitors it and they'll see a spike or they'll see mentions and they'll warn you. So you don't have to have an army of people watching on social media and they'll, these companies have a variety of services. They may advise you and say, or they may provide you know, physical or cybersecurity help, but at least they give you awareness. Now, a lot of times nothing happens, right? But you'd rather be prepared for nothing happening because sometimes something major happens. So no, to reiterate, you do not need to hire a cube farm of Gen Z whiz kids to monitor every mention of your company online. There are in fact companies to do that for you. Although I'm sure the whiz kids would appreciate the jobs. Last but not least, Mickey Schiffman. 
This co-founder of rail-focused cybersecurity firm Silas shares thoughts about the state of rail technology and the impressive growth in recent years of good cybersecurity for rail. And of course, we'll mention autonomous trains. Just as a basic, we need to understand how trains are operating so we could understand what's the threat landscape. So if we okay. look at trains, um, so historically people think about quite unsophisticated machinery that is moving on tracks, people manually moving signals or changing uh, point machines or statuses. Right. But this has quite significantly changed over the past few years or decades. And it started from like changing mechanical aspects to be more digital. Then it moved to taking control from the driver and making it more, more automated. And in the future, it's becoming also autonomous. So it's not just automated, but also autonomous. And it's all based currently in wireless communication, on digital systems, and effectively on trains can consist of lots of different machines or computers that are communicating with each other for the purposes of safety and for availability. Um, and when you understand this, you can understand that if a train receives the wrong command from the wayside, yep. it might cause a potential availability issue or sometimes even a safety issue. And there are lots of standards, lots of protocols and technologies around the world that are there to ensure safety and availability and, of course, efficiency for trains. But at the same time, these protocols with the introduction of this degree of connectivity actually expose rail companies to threats. For executing a digital threat, you don't need to be like actually the same geographical area. You can do it from somewhere home remotely. And thinking about the opportunity that someone from remote will somehow hack into uh, a rail operator and change or affect the speed of the train or affect the status of the signals in a way that can make two trains collide, in my opinion, that's a very important scenario that we should care about. Um, and we know that cyber attacks are typically stealthy. We know that these can sometimes take weeks or months and hackers or threat actors can be in the networks much before that they execute the damage. And in my opinion, it's much more sophisticated and also reproducible from the attacker point of view because physical attacks typically with some physical measures you can uh, make better security. Uh, and it's going to be very hard to reproduce such an attack, but an attack that targets a train in one country can afterwards target a train in another country without actually like having the same criminals or activists present in each of those countries. They can do it all remotely from somewhere. Is there anything that your impression, when you talk to other security professionals, so they don't work in rail, so they work in events, they work on location in places, they're working on cybersecurity outside rail, are there things they don't get? Is there a part that's sort of overly simplistic in their mind that they don't understand about how the freight rail system is working and that usually you tell them? Is it, What's the biggest myth about how the system is working internationally? I think one of the biggest myths, for example, is the fact that in most of the modern rail systems or rolling stock or locomotives, you can actually operate them without human intervention, which is, in my opinion... Oh, so people think there's already autonomous trains running everywhere. No, so the opposite. So they don't understand that most of the trains already that are out there, or many of them, 
are actually like the driver's cab already includes a main computing unit. It's called an onboard unit that is already responsible for receiving commands from the tracks and executing them on the train. And these are all digital commands, so it's not someone who's by vocal commands telling the driver what to do. Actually, like it's all being processed on board and analyzed on board. So status of signals, things like that, they already get there. And the reason for that, by the way, is because sometimes train, they operate in a very, like you want to, uh, if I look, for example, in the urban or metro scenario, you want to squeeze trains and make sure that the headway between two trains is as small as possible and the human response sometimes is too slow for that. And second reason for that is you have trains that are moving very fast. And when they're moving very fast, the driver cannot actually uh, read the signal because a stopping distance of a train can be quite big. So it can be like one kilometer of a stopping distance. So it means that you not necessarily can watch the signal and respond in uh, in a sufficient amount of time. So that's that's a big risk. And when people start understanding it, they start asking themselves questions. That, by the way, what I asked myself when I entered the rail space is how do systems actually work if they're that uh, wireless or that autonomous or automated? Yeah. Uh, and when you start getting into the details, I understand some of them have been designed with some security measures in mind, but some now also did not. Why not? Because it never was a concern. Like trains were effectively caring for safety and they haven't had security professionals uh, in their processes. And that has all changed in the past few years. But uh, I could say that five years ago, that was the case. Most rail suppliers or train builders or rail operators didn't have lots of security personnel involved in the process. But still, at the same time, I, I see a tremendous like uh, improvement in the rail industry and improvement in the way that they take security. And we see it all across the board with regulators, operators, and suppliers. So uh, not, not in any particular order, but uh, you see it all sure. across the board. And, uh, uh, and that's great to see. And I believe that like, the security of rail system moving forward will be much, uh, much better. Okay, and then my last question is, as in your part in participating, do you get brought in a lot at the beginning where if you're thinking about this big piece of hardware is going to ride around for 30, 40 years possibly, do they bring you or folks like you in the beginning, security professionals, to figure this stuff out? Or a lot of times you have to come in on the back end, we built this thing, can you make it technologically safe? Sure. So I think it's both. So you need to, when you look at rail, you need care first on the install base that you already have, which is lots of systems uh, that are out there and running on the tracks, and they need to be properly secured because threat actors can definitely target them, or they are targeting them at the moment. And that's where you need to take into consideration all the constraints that this environment includes and implement security in a proper way that will reduce the risk, but at the same time, won't introduce like super substantial costs and uh, I don't know, safety implications because Every time you change something, it can also make damage. Then necessarily, uh, <laughs> right. not necessarily just improves. The improved security should come hand in hand with not uh, harming the safety as well. So, so that's one aspect of it. Second aspect of it is new systems. So, what I can say, which is quite good, is that almost every new rail system is being specified to suppliers by operators. Now includes already some security requirements, and security is already like a major part of. It rail suppliers needs to comply with in order to actually do business. They cannot do business otherwise. So uh, if you now as a rail supplier just ignore security, you won't look good at the market and customers will most likely not going to buy from you. 
And uh, the good thing is that, of course, yeah, those rail suppliers, uh, and we work with some of the most, the, the largest ones of them, uh, they take security seriously, they interact with security vendors like us early in the process. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Bank of Hawaii's Brian Ishikawa CPP, Gips Michael Gips CPP, and Silas's Mickey Schiffman. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. If you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. You can find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.